Welcome to Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Tonight on Socalo Radio, now considered one of the hottest composers in Hollywood, Michael Giacchino had some hurdles to climb in his career path. In this visit to Socalo, the Grammy winner tells film music critic John Burlingame that despite his successes as video game composer for Steven Spielberg, nobody would even talk to him about writing scores for film or television. Nevertheless, from his background as a spunky kid from New Jersey who cobbled together movies using his dad's old 8mm camera and record collection, to working odd jobs in the industry, Giacchino explains how his metal was tested and eventually prevailed. In tonight's funny and fast-paced interview, the genial tunesmith also gives us a sneak peek of the soon-to-be-released Speed Racer and his upcoming Star Trek project. Recorded before a live audience at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art's Leo S. Bing Theater as part of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, here is John Burlingame with Michael Giacchino. Thank you. Our guest tonight is one of Hollywood's hottest and most in-demand composers, not just for movies, but also for weekly television and for video games. He has received multiple awards for his Medal of Honor game music, an Emmy for his music for Lost, the LA Film Critics Award for The Incredibles, a Grammy, and an Academy Award nomination for Ratatouille. He's just finished scoring Speed Racer, and he's about to start the music for the next big screen Star Trek. Please help me welcome Michael Giacchino. Welcome. Before we talk about the specifics of your career, I wonder if you can take a minute and talk a little bit about where you're from and what you did as a kid that ultimately led to the career you have now. Well, when I was nine years old, I went, like every other nine-year-old kid in the United States at that time, and went and saw Star Wars. And I remember after it was over, I, was, I, I, I thought, that's it. That's what I want to do. That is, it's over. It's done. I decided... I don't need to go to school anymore, it's, that's it. From that point on, my dad said, well, you want to make movies, here's my old eight millimeter camera, which he hadn't used in years. He gave me that, filled it with film, and said, go make a movie. So I just started making movies all the time. One of the things I enjoyed most about the process was going through my dad's record collection and finding music that would fit to what was going on to the movies I made. And it got to the point where it was so complicated. I mean, I, I, I did this all you know, growing up, and I, you know, by the time I was 12 or 13, I was trying to figure out, okay, how can I make things? Now, I really want that heroic thing to happen here, you know? But when you're just, you know, have a projector and you're hitting a tape recorder, it's like it, it, there's not much sync going on. So I would, like, play the movie, and then I, what I would do is flip the tape over and play it backwards. And then when I got to the point I wanted it to be, there was this, I knew that I could rewind the movie, put the tape back, and it would be exactly the right distance away from where that hit needed to happen. So that's how I would build my soundtracks, you know? And I lived in my basement. It was my studio. We had a ping pong table, but I took it over and I built mountain sets and, and futuristic buildings and all that, and that's where I lived. I spent my childhood there. You must have had very understanding parents. My parents were both teachers, and they were great about encouraging any... I have a, a sister and two brothers, and whatever it was we were interested in, they were always there to just kind of foster 
that unless it was, as long as it was constructive, I also showed an interest in blowing up things, which they didn't <laughs> foster that. <laughs> but, but they didn't get home till three o'clock, so I always had time in between. But anyway, um, but they were, they were there to always foster us and give us the tools we needed to explore whatever it was we were interested in. And I think, you know, that right there was key in, in just firing me up for this thing because it was, I never got to a point where I felt like I was at a dead end. You know, with, whenever I felt like I was at a dead end, my dad would be like, well, did you try this? Or, or, or how about this book? This book talks, and he didn't know. I mean, we're talking, my dad was a guy that, I'll never let him forget this. When he took me to see The Empire Strikes Back, he fell asleep in the middle of the asteroid field <laughs> thing. And I, I, can, I will never forget this day, just looking over and, and, when, and seeing him sleeping. Through, like, I looked over, like, to say, isn't this great? And, I, and, and he's sleeping. And I remember just being, like, so disappointed. But anyway, so our interests weren't always the same, but he was interested in and feeding my interests, you know? So he would give me a book on special effects or he'd give me a book on whatever, take me to the library or take me, you know, I grew up in New Jersey and I had very little access to this town or anything that, you know, and uh, so everything I wanted, I had to go out and hunt down myself or with his help. It was very different then because now you have the internet. You can, from anywhere in the world, you can learn about anything. But it was really different then. So I, I give so much credit for me being here to them. Sure. Because they were just... And and at one point, did you start to play a musical instrument? Yeah, when I was, I was always messing around with the piano, and they gave us piano lessons, and I absolutely was the worst piano student I think anyone could ever hope to have. That is mainly because whenever they said, here, do this, I was like, I don't want to do that, I want to do this. (laughs) I want to do something different, you know? And, And so instead of practicing or doing my scales or learning... There's only one thing I remember from my piano lessons, and it's this little thing called Sleigh Ride. And it was from probably the first book I ever, you know, the first piano book, and it was at Thompson's piano book. But I, I remember learning that, and I hated that, and I learned it, and I was like, I don't want to learn any more. I just wanted to figure out how to play things that I liked, like, you know, the theme to Star Wars or, or uh, Gilligan's Island or whatever it was. You know, that, that, those were the things I was just like. So I was always in trouble with my piano teacher. It wasn't fun. So then the, the musical component and the visual component sort of went hand in hand yes, for you. absolutely. And there's a game that I used to play as a kid when I would be in bed and I could hear the TV on in my parents' room or even downstairs sometimes, and I would try and guess what they were watching by listening to what music that what I heard, you know? And so if I heard, I could hear the Rockford Files or I could hear, you know, any number of, of MASH, you know, uh, as well. You know, these were things that I would listen to and try and figure out, wait, what's that theme, you know? So themes were were really important to me in music, you know. And, and melody seemed to have, at least at that time and, and for years previous, where, where melody was huge in movies and TV, and, and, and it seems to have kind of gone away a bit. But, but anyway, that was really attracted me with m- melody. At what point did you find a foothold in the film business? I had a great art teacher in high school, and he said, and you know, all the way through high school, from nine years old all the way to high school, I was making movies all the time. And I dragged my friends into this whole process as well. And we had this group of, of kids that we, we went out during the summers. And instead of uh, getting drunk and, and doing all the fun things that high school kids are supposed to be doing, I, I was making movies. And didn't, until much later, look back and, wow, I really missed a lot. Uh, <laughs> you know, this, this whole thing. But we had a lot of fun. And I had an art teacher who said, you know, you really should go to a, a film school. And I'm like, there are such things? Really? And I started looking around, and I found a couple that I liked. One was 
uh, he suggested the School of Visual Arts in New York City. And then I also saw CalArts, and I thought, whoa, CalArts, that sounds great. It's in California, it's near here. But I didn't get in. But I did get into School of Visual Arts, so I ended up in New York City there, which I loved. I actually, living in New York City was one of the greatest times of my life. It was such, I think everyone should live in New York for a little bit, even if it's just a year or so, because it's just such an eye-opener. You know, I could tell you stories, but they're very off-color. We won't really do that. Did you graduate from there and then uh, find a, a, a way into the, uh, the, the... Well, the thing about School of Visual uh, Arts was the reason I really wanted CalArts was because not only did they have a film program, but they had a music program as well. Well, uh, when I didn't get into there, the School of Visual Arts, they only had a film program. So I thought, okay, well, I could go there and then maybe find a way to get private lessons somewhere and continue that. In addition, I always just had books on orchestration, books or whatever books I could find about music, I would, I would read and study myself and do a lot of self-study in that, in that sense. But, so I spent four years in film school. In film school, we had a class in marketing, and there were about 50 kids in this class, and the teacher said, she worked at Orion, which was still around at the time, and she said, I have a friend that works at Universal, is looking for an intern, is anyone interested? And every kid in the class raised their hand, and she goes, I, 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 I forgot to tell you, it's an unpaid internship for six months. <laughs> Everyone's hand went down, and except for mine, I was like, that's Universal, they made E.T., you know, <laughs> I was like, that would be awesome, you know. So uh, she set me up with this interview. I go, I'm the only kid from the class that goes in interviews. And I, I remember this. The door opens in the elevator. It was, it was on Park Avenue, you know, the building. The door opens on the uh, floor that they were on. And, and I see there's this E.T. poster right there. And I was just like, this is E.T. <laughs> Steven Spielberg probably was on this elevator. <laughs> so I... I went and had the interview, and I got the job, and I was uh, selling stereos at Macy's for money. You know, that's how I, all through college, I worked at Macy's, uh, selling stereos in the electronics department. And so I would go work at Macy's, and then I would go to work uh, at the internship. So I had this double thing going on for, for six months, and at the end of the six months, they asked if I wanted a job there. So I was able to quit Macy's, and I had a full-time job making $17,000 a year in New York City at Universal Pictures, which I thought was the greatest thing in the world. That was the greatest thing in the world. And I was literally, I was clipping reviews out of papers. I was uh, helping fill screenings for, pub for publicity uh, events. I was talking to reporters. I was uh, helping at the premiere. So I was, uh, I, that's what I was doing. But what was you know, happening during that time that I didn't realize until I looked back many years later, was I was just learning about the film business from the inside. And I didn't really think about it at the time. I really loved what I was doing, and it was fun to see everything from the inside, but it taught me so much about the process of making movies and how to deal with uh, studio executives, how to deal with all the, all the different personalities that you come across while you're working on these crazy things. Mm. So I think that my time there and then later at Disney really helped me lay some really, really important groundwork for the business side of what we do. How did you wind up in Los Angeles then? Similar thing. Someone, when I was at Disney working there, one of the people out in L.A. who came back and forth every so often said, you know, I have an assistant who is leaving. Would you like to come out and be my assistant? And he was the, his name was Gary Kalkin. He was the senior vice president of marketing. And he worked under Jeffrey Katzenberg and Bob Levin and these guys. And so then I you know, was able to go out there to L.A. and continue doing what I was doing in New York, but be even deeper inside the whole thing because of his, he was at such a high level. He was dealing with all of these personalities all the time. So I really had this amazing kind of eye-opening 
again, education. It was like going getting my master's in filmmaking, these jobs. I did skip, I forgot to tell you that when I was at Disney in New York, I also uh, took time off from that job to go and study at Juilliard during the day. I had a boss who, who, who made me go and take classes. He was like, you know, marketing's great, but your love is music, so don't forget, go and do... And he set this whole thing up so I could leave a couple hours a day to take classes there. That's a pretty special boss. Oh, the best. <laughs> and the, the great thing about it, when I came to L.A., the new boss that I got did the same thing for me. And I went and took classes at UCLA at night. Mm. And he even had Disney pay for it, you know? Wow. So thank you, Disney. Um, <laughs> it's so funny because all these years later, I'm still, almost everything I do is for Disney, you know? So I kind of never left the place, you know? They've gotten plenty of you. Yeah, yes, I think I paid them back. <laughs> I hope. Um, how did you wind up in the video game world? Was that a fairly smooth transition from marketing and promotion? Well, what had happened was in marketing, my, my best friend there at the time and I were writing scripts together at night and trying to get a, you know, maybe we could sell a script. At, and uh, I would be writing music on the weekends and still studying at UCLA. And we, this job came up at uh, Disney for, in their interactive division for an assistant producer, and they had one job available. So it was one of those things where kind of he and I looked at each other and was just like, I really want this job. And he said, I really want this job too. So uh, I said, well, let's both just go and interview, and whatever happens, happens. Maybe neither of us will get it. So we went and we interviewed. As it turns out, they, they, they liked us both and ended up hiring us both. So we both, we both left marketing at the same time and moved over divisions uh, to Disney Interactive. And when I got there as an assistant producer, I started realizing that, and what I had learned in my time in marketing, too, was that producers were, were hiring composers. Producers were really kind of in charge of get, organizing all of this and, and figuring out who are they going to bring in for the director of the meet and all of this. And I thought, well, if this is a job as an assistant producer, maybe I, if I have any pull in that area... Maybe eventually I can hire myself to write music for these things. So as time went on there, I kind of got comfortable and got to know everyone. And eventually I said, you know, they were like, oh, we need music. Let's call the normals, whoever their relationship was with. And I said, you know, let me try first. Do you mind if I just try? And they were like, okay, sure. Uh, so I tried, and they liked it. And then they just kept asking me to do more and more. Did you have a synthesizer set up at home? I did. I had a very small setup at home. I had a Mac SE30 that my uncle had bought me. I had a JV880 synthesizer. I don't know if anyone even knows what that is. Uh, but to me, it was like this great, great device, which allows you to, to kind of write you know, music and listen back to it. So I did have that, and I was able to use that system at home. But eventually, I got them so... They started trusting me more and more, and I ended up building a small music studio for them at Disney Interactive. They let me just go out and buy whatever we needed for it, and it was like this great thing. And then they were like, I said, can I use it at nighttime too for my And they were like, yeah. You know, they were very supportive of the whole thing. So that's really how it started, just by, again, putting myself in the middle of a situation where eventually they were going to need music. Because, you know, I often am asked, like, how do you, how do you, how can you do this? How can you, how can I do what you're doing? And I send out CDs all the time, and I'm like, well, that's, I hate to say this, but I really think that that's a mistake. Because you're, you're throwing out these things in, in hopes that somebody's going to listen to it, but no one ever does. I mean, because I used to get them all the time. As a producer at Disney, get them all the time, and you just don't have the time to listen to them, and you either have your relationships already with the people that you're working with, so it's a very tough thing. I always thought, just get inside, get to know people, and then start kind of dealing out what you do. So what was your first video game music assignment? <laughs> For a game called Maui Mallard. 
and it was a Donald Duck game in which Donald Duck was a uh, played like a 40s detective kind of a thing, you know? I want to uh, hear Sam, that. A Sam Spade kind of thing. <laughs> so it was semi-big bandy, tropical, sort of, kind of, uh, you know, less Baxter-ish, this kind of feel. And, and it was a lot of fun, and I had, I had a great time doing it. So that was my first video game. How yeah. did you get the Lost World game? Well, when I was at Disney Interactive, Jeffrey, had, Jeffrey Katzenberg had left Disney. And you remember that whole, that was a big event, big event in, 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 in Hollywood at the time. And he said, I'm taking everyone with me. And this, there was all this stuff going on. Well, I ended up being one of the people that kind of went over very early. And uh, they had a meeting one day with Steven Spielberg, who was really involved. In, you know, this was, that was an exciting time when that company was just, just starting out because it was really so small and everyone's ideas mattered and they listened to everybody. And I remember being in the middle of kind of this process where I was actually in a in a room with Steven Spielberg and Jeffrey Katzenberg at the same time pitching them ideas for things. And I remember thinking, this is nuts. <laughs> this is just crazy. I, 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 and I don't know if that translated in, if I stuttered or what, but I just remember the whole time I'm pitching, I'm thinking, this is absolutely insane that I'm standing here in front of these guys who, you know, especially Steven, who, who I had grown up just wanting to be, you know? So it was really fun, but he was so involved in the making of everything. So when they were, he was filming The Lost World, they were designing a video game for it. And they needed music for this meeting. You know, they were about to present to him animation and character designs and all of this stuff. And Patrick Gilmore, who I was working for at the time, called me up and said, can you provide some music for our meeting tomorrow? And I said, ah, sure, okay. So I wrote something that night and gave it to them. And and then I was in my office that afternoon, and the phone rang, and it was Patrick. I was like, oh, hey, how'd the meeting go? And he's like, you need to come downstairs. Stephen wants to talk to you. And I was like, Stephen who? <laughs> you know? He's like, Steven Spielberg wants to talk to you. You have to come down right now. I'm like, really? And I just hung up the phone. I remember I went to the stairs, and again, this is like one of my favorite memories, is they had this escalator at DreamWorks Interactive. They were in Bel Air at the time. And I get on the escalator, and I'm heading down the escalator, and Steven Spielberg is down at the bottom of the escalator just standing there. And I remember, and it was literally, and it was like a shot out of one of his movies, because you know he does those things where they just pan into the characters' things. So I was like going down the escalator, and it's just going there. And I'm, all I kept thinking about is like that shot in Indiana Jones uh, in the Temple of Doom, where Indy, the camera just goes right up to his face. And I just kept thinking, oh my God, is it just like that? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so then he, you know, puts his hand out and he's like, Michael, you know, the music, he liked the music. And, and at the time, it was going to be just synthesized music because video games were not, they were not spending money for that kind of a thing. But out of his mouth comes the words, so when are we recording this with the orchestra? You know? And he was flanked by the CEO and the CFO you know, of, of DreamWorks. And they were just like... <laughs> and they, they look at me and they're like, well, Michael, when, what are we doing about that? I was like, well, I'm getting the numbers together, I guess. <laughs> they were like, great, great. And, and Stephen was like, yeah, well, we have to do this with live orchestra. It's the only way to do these things. Which was all I ever wanted to do was work with live orchestras because when I was growing up, that's what I listened to. I was just listening to the weirdest things, you know, from John Philip Sousa to Louis Prima to, to big band music, Benny Goodman to classical stuff. I mean, I loved live orchestra or live ensembles. So when I heard that, that was like, great. So I, uh, that, that was my first orchestral gig right there. And at that point, did you more or less become a full-time composer? 
almost. I was still working at DreamWorks for that. I went through that process, still working there for about halfway, and I eventually said, you know, can I quit my job here, which was falling apart anyway. My game wasn't, was being canceled and, and all of this. And I, I said, can I just quit and I'll still work for you guys, but, but I'll just be on call freelance. And they were like, yeah, that's fine. Get them off our books, you know? So I went home at the time and it was right around the time that we were about to have our first son. And I remembered I was set up in the bedroom, which would eventually become his bedroom. So then I had to move to the garage, but that was, yeah, that was the beginning when I started working on my own just as a composer. And Medal of Honor followed soon. Medal of Honor followed about a, a year after that game. They were, he was making Saving Private Ryan, and they were doing this game called Medal of Honor. And he, again, he was very involved in the process of, of designing and building that game. He loves video games, and, and he plays them with his kids. And, and, and so he was, he was around quite a bit in those days. And it was a really important thing to him. And uh, so I remember that. I went from a 36-piece orchestra on... The Lost World to a 64-piece orchestra on Medal of Honor, and was that was huge. And by the time I did my last Medal of Honor, we we had like a 110-person orchestra, you know. And and was it groundbreaking to do this with live orchestras? Because wasn't most video game music electronic? Yeah, it was. And and the thing that allowed us to do this too was first a him saying it because if he hadn't said it, nobody would have pulled the trigger to spend the money on that. Not one person, you know, they wouldn't have listened to me. But the other thing was that the technology was now at the point, too, where you were dealing with a CD-ROM, and you could put audio tracks on it. So whereas before, you're, if you're thinking back, back to the Super Nintendo games and the and Sega Genesis games, you had to deal with a small synthesizer you know, built into the game yeah. itself, and you really had no bandwidth to do anything that sounded real. How did you make the transition from video game composer to television? Well, I had done a bunch of Medal of Honor games, and I was getting to the point where I, I wanted to get into TV and film so bad. I wanted, because again, that was kind of where it all started for me at nine. And I remember I was able to do these games, but I was not able to get a job. Not even, no one would even want to talk to me in TV or in movies because they kept saying, well, you're doing, you know, video games. And, and I'd be like, yeah, but it's the bigger orchestras than some movies are doing. And I said, and it's, you know, does, they didn't even care that, you know, Steven Spielberg made these games. They're not interested into that. They were not interested in it. They just didn't want to talk to me. Couldn't get anything. So what happened was I was sitting there in the garage after I'd moved out of my son's room. And I remember just being kind of like down thinking, God, how can I make this jump into this next arena, you know, because it's not working. And I remember I got this email late at night. <laughs> it was this crazy email from, he goes, hi, my name is J.J. Abrams. He goes, <laughs> he goes, I love your music. I've played all the games. He goes, I'm, I, I wrote Armageddon and, and Felicity and uh, Regarding Henry, and I'm about to direct my first show for ABC. Would you want to come talk to me about it? <laughs> I was like, really? So I, I remember bringing my laptop in to, and showed uh, my wife. I was like, you think this is a joke? Is somebody... <laughs> I thought, seriously, one of my friends was screwing with me. And, and, and I, I didn't know who it was. But she's like, well, why don't you just call? I was like, okay, yeah, duh. I guess I should. So the next morning, I called. And sure enough, he was like, oh, I'm so glad you called. Would you come down and meet with me? So... Uh, the, the, within a week, I was down there meeting with him, and they had just started, they were just about to start shooting Alias, the first episode. 
And I remember being there with him, and immediately we got along great, you know? I mean, it was just like kind of meeting up with a friend from high school or something. We both kind of came out of the same world as far as making movies as kids, and we had a lot in common. And that's how I got Alias, just, just because he and his buddies had played these games, and they liked the music in them. And I was thinking at the time, how can I get my name out there, not thinking that there are people my age actually playing these things who actually have jobs in this business, too. I, it just never occurred to me. One of the things that I think was remarkable about Alias was the fact that you were able to bring back an orchestra yeah, in, well, in underscore for television, which by that time was pretty much not in fashion anymore. No, there was nobody. I mean, outside of you know a couple of animated things, Simpsons, of course, Alf has been doing that for many years. But in live action, especially in drama, right. outside of Star Trek, of course, it wasn't being done at all anywhere. And I told JJ, I, you know, because at this point I had done all of these games with live orchestras, and that, I, you know, that's all I wanted to do at that point. And from then on, it was kind of like this crusade. We got to do this. This has got to be in games. We've got to bring it back to TV. And I brought this up to him, and he was like, absolutely, we should definitely do this. Because, again, he knows that as a kid, we both grew up with the same kind of ideals as far as if you wanted to relive something you saw as a kid, the only way to do it was to listen to the score and relive it in your head. There were no videotapes. There were no DVDs. I mean, you just didn't have it. So he felt very strongly about it as well as I did. So he went to the networks and fought them on it and got them to, to say, okay, we'll do this. And why is that important? What does an orchestra bring to a dramatic underscore that you wouldn't have with electronics? I think it really, you know, and not to say that you can't, synth for synth's sake is, is amazing, is great, because sometimes there are some great landscapes created with synths, so I, I definitely want to make sure that that's clear, but I have, a, I have a problem where they use sampled violins to sound like a violin, and you strip the story and the show of its soul, if you intend on using an orchestra, use an orchestra. And I just think that the players, their soul is trans, kind of transferred into the soul of the show, if that makes sense. And it's something that then is transferred to the audience. You know? And it's nothing that you can... You wouldn't know it. Like you wouldn't Probably the average person wouldn't say, oh, I'm listening to a live orchestra here. But I think that they would feel it. You know? And it's one of those things that you feel when you're watching something. So it just amplifies that aspect. Was your work on Alias, which was basically a spy show, mm -hmm. responsible for getting you The Incredibles? Yes. I, well, two things were responsible for that. One was a friend of mine who was an animator that I worked with at Disney. Who we, I, one of my really close friends, his name is Teddy Newton, who was also one of the character designers on The Incredibles. He, we kind of went separate ways at one point, and he went up to Pixar. And he said, you know, he called me up, and he's like, Michael, I think that they're... Uh, think they're looking for a composer on this and I think that if I got some of your music I could get it into the editing room for you you know and I thought oh that that would be great so anyway I, for whatever reason he called me up to have a meeting with him and it was the same thing that happened with JJ where we're instantly we just bonded and we had a very similar again like JJ similar childhood making movies uh, we had this huge love of this show that I loved as a kid called Johnny Quest and so we both, suddenly, we stopped talking about why I was even there. We just had these, started having these conversations about, well, what about this episode of Johnny Quest? <laughs> what about this? And it became this really whole other thing. And then uh, weeks went by, and I hadn't heard anything. And I was like, God, I thought that went great. What happened? And I kept calling his assistant, and she's like, oh, we don't have anything yet, and I don't know yet. And I was like, because I wanted this movie so bad, because after they showed me a bit of it, I just thought, this is right up my alley. 
It's born out of everything I loved as a kid, you know? So I remember I got something in the mail. I got this T-shirt in the mail one day. And I was like, it, not even a note on it. It was just a, a T-shirt, a, an Incredibles T-shirt, right? And I was like, um, I got the T-shirt. I called his office and said, I got the T-shirt. Is that? She's like, no, no word yet. They're still figuring things out. I'm like, <laughs> I was like, are you kidding me? Literally, literally four days later, I got a notebook with the Incredibles on it. No note, nothing, just this notebook. And I was like, come on, this is like, what are you, you know? And I call her up again, and she's like, no, there's still no word, nothing. I'm like, God. So then a couple of days later, I got a call, and they're like, I have Brad for you on the phone. I was like, okay. So Brad calls me up, and he's like, all right, listen. He goes, I just want to tell you, this is going to be the hardest job you ever had in your life. And I was like, wait, does that, does that mean I, do I get it? And he's like, yes, you get it. And I was just so happy because I kept thinking like, oh, this is never going to happen. And it's one of those things that you want so bad, but you try not to get excited about it because, you know, but it ended up working out. And... All right, let's listen to a clip. This is called Saving Metroville on the soundtrack. You're listening to composer Michael Giacchino with John Burlingame. For information or to hear past broadcasts, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We'll return in a moment. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. some ideas on things to do, where to go, and what to see? Sign up for KPCC's monthly arts and culture newsletter. Delivered to your inbox every month, it contains information on the Southland's cultural happenings. Visit kpcc.org and click on the newsletter's link to sign up. If you're wishing you had a few more tax deductions last year, now's the time to get started for 2008. When you contribute to KPCC, your support not only goes right back into the in-depth news and programming you rely on each day, but it pays off at tax time as well. Contribute today at kpcc.org, and you'll be all set for tax season next year. Thanks for your support. Programming on 89.3 KPCC is supported by UCLA Live. 
presenting two of Iran's leading feminist voices, Azar Nafisi and Marjan Satrapi. Author of the New York Times bestseller Reading Lolita in Tehran and gender reform advocate Azar Nafisi is joined in a discussion by fellow Iranian writer Marjan Satrapi, whose graphic novel Persepolis was recently released as an animated feature. At Royce Hall, April 16th. Information at uclalive.org. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. We now return to composer Michael Giacchino with John Burlingame. So was this the hardest job you ever had? You know, it, I always go into these jobs thinking it's going to be, but it, it never is. I mean, because you just, next thing you know, you find yourself on the back end of the job looking back going, wow, I can't believe all that is done. You know, because you're really, when you go through these pro this process, you're just so focused on, on what you're doing that the whole idea of is it hard, is it not hard kind of goes away and only creeps back into your head at night when you're just lying in bed trying to go to sleep going, oh my God, I completely screwed up this whole movie. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so at those moments, it does hit you, but during the process, most of it, you're just kind of just doing your thing, hoping that it gets done right. How different is working in television versus working in movies? Uh, the only thing that's different is the schedule. You know, if I do a, an episode of Lost, I will, main, most of the time, I could get that done in two days. There have been times where I've had to do it in one day. And, and you're writing and you're orchestrating and you're getting it out the door. And, and then the next morning you show up on the stage and uh, you're recording it, you know? And because we do a, a new score for every episode. So it's the schedule that's different. But the process is the same. And I would say that the process is the same for video games, for the same for television and for films. I mean, really, you're writing for characters and story. Maybe we could, you could just quickly walk us through what the process is. For example, I mean, you sit with the director and look at the rough cut and decide where a movie's going. That, well, where that is a little different, too. It depends if you're on a film or if you're on TV. Like on TV, it shows up at your house and they say, please get it done. You know, <laughs> just get it done. You know, and, and I have a tremendous amount of freedom working on Lost and I did on Alias, too, where, where I, in the very beginning... JJ and I would sit down on Alias. We had two spotting meetings, and I remember the first time we went through this thing and we're talking and we're finishing each other's sentences. Oh, then we could do this and then stop this there, start that here. And, uh, and by the second time, we were like, you know, we don't need to do these anymore. Just go, and he, would, he said, just go and do what you want. And that was a huge amount of freedom for me because everyone else I knew had these like regulated spotting sessions every week that they had to go through. But for me, he was just, he trusted me for whatever reason. And, uh, and then it happened like that on Lost, too, where I'll get an episode. And, I, and what I do on Lost is very different than what I did on Alias. On Alias, I would watch an entire episode and then kind of think about On Lost, what I'll do is sit down with an episode, start at the very beginning, and I'll watch it until I think there should be music. You know, when something affects me on screen that I feel like, uh, I, when I start feeling, you know, something kind of changing inside, I just then I write a cue for that scene. I stop. I don't go any further. I write a cue for that scene. Then I... When I finish that, I go on to, I, then I just continue playing from that point wherever that cue ends. And so, then the next so time I think that there's, you know, so it's this, because the show is so, if I don't know how many people watch it, but it's a very uh, reactive show. And it's a very kind of the characters, nobody knows what's going to happen next. And the audience sure is, it doesn't know what's going to happen next. So I like to kind of keep as much of that surprise, at least 
in the music as well, too, because I always think I'm going to give something away subliminally if I know what's coming up, or if I know which character dies, or if I know, so that by the time we get to that moment where that character is offed, I'm suddenly reacting to it as if, wait, because this is someone that I actually care about. This is something, so I feel it's just a little different. So you're reacting so, as any viewer would react yes, exactly. to the, to That's the drama. What I'm trying to do, yeah. yeah. Let's listen to a little bit of music from Lost. Ben's theme, you know, Ben's theme, and, and uh, what's fun about the show is it's kind of like this crazy opera, you know, and so every character has a theme that changes dramatically as the stories progress. Ben's theme is really fun because like that, that was the first kind of version of Ben's theme that really just kind of, but then I was able to turn it into this really kind of heartbreaking thing too when you learn about his backstory as a kid and it's kind of fun. The show is fun in that respect because it allows you to build these things. Can you talk about your musical palette for Lost? I mean, you sort of set some boundaries for yourself. Yeah, I always like setting, you know, when I can and when it's appropriate, I love setting a real specific box around what I do so that I don't just have anything at my disposal. And on TV, it's important, I think, because it, this goes back to what I was talking about earlier when I would listen to TV shows from the other room and try and guess what it was. And I remember each TV show had a very specific kind of sound or feel to it. And they would have their own instrumentation. And, and I, that was really important to me. So when we did Alias, I, I really wanted to just keep a very specific instrumentation. And then when we got to Lost, I have strings, I have a piano, I have a harp, I have four trombones, and a lot of weird percussion. But no woodwinds. And why is that? Well, because someone had mentioned early on, well, it's a jungle show. We should have some of those, you know, flute sounds and shifts and different things. And I was like, you know what? I said, I don't think we should do that. And I'll tell you why. I said, I think because the characters have no clue where they are. It is the most uncomfortable place on the planet. It looks like the most beautiful place, but it's really unbelievably uncomfortable. And I said, if we do that, it's going to just key anyone who's listening into what is normal about jungle shows, you know, and, and it'll, 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 it'll provide a level of comfort that I think we should completely stay away from, you know, we should bring something to the island that just totally doesn't belong, and four trombones in a string section don't belong on the island, you know, so I, 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 so I just thought, anyway, that was just my thinking of it, but it's, it's kind of fun, it's this, I don't, ever want to be bored at what I'm doing, so I'm always coming up with these crazy kind of ways of keeping it interesting for me. So, obviously, Brad Bird called you back to do Ratatouille. Yes, yes. I'm sure that most of us agree here that it was not only a delightful film, there were a lot of people who were thrilled that your 
elegant souffle of a score, was Academy Award nominated this year. Let's listen to a clip from Ratatouille. What was the biggest challenge of scoring Ratatouille? <laughs> scoring Ratatouille was the biggest challenge because I remember when Brad called me, I'll never forget, I was sitting in my driveway and talking on the phone. You know, my wife likes to call him my girlfriend or whatever, boyfriend. Your boyfriend's on the phone, you know, because we talk all the time. We've become really good friends. And, and on the way home, he calls me, tells me what's going on with work. And he goes, look, they, um, they asked me to take over this movie, and it's about a rat that cooks, <laughs> and he lives in Paris. <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> I said, are you going to say yes to this? I said, and he goes, well, I think I should. They're really pressuring me. I think I should, I could, you know, and I'm like, well, <clears throat> it doesn't sound like a great idea, I said, <laughs> but honestly, I, I, if anyone in this world can make a crazy idea like that work, it would be Brad Bird, who, you know, I think is just one of the greatest filmmakers working. We have one more clip to play for you, and it deals with one of your most recent accomplishments. So if you have seen Cloverfield and sat through the last 10 minutes of the credits, <laughs> you will have heard this.
Thank, thank you. There's no music, there's no <laughs> score per se in no. the movie, right? I strong-armed them into letting me do that because I love monster movies. There was a, one of my favorite shows as a kid was a show called Ultraman. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of it. <laughs> God, I, it's just one of my favorite shows. I mean, me and my brother would hide behind the sofa during that show, but it would scare the living hell out of us, but I loved it. So when I knew that, Jay, talking to JJ, I knew that he was making this film, I was like, what do you mean there's no music in it? What do you mean? What does that mean? Does that mean I can't work on it? There's no music? He's like, well, it's all a handheld camera. And I was just, I was like, well, what if I did an overture that we then played at the end of the movie that is filled with the music that might have been in the movie if there were music in the movie, you know? And he was like, yeah, let's do it. If you want to, let's do it. If you, he goes, you want to do that? I was like, yes, I want to do it. You can't go outside and play without me. It's not <laughs> fair. <laughs> you oh, know? That, that's it's just great. Not right. So and and that's how that happened. And is it a kind of homage to Japanese totally, monsters? Absolutely, it's totally an homage to everything I loved as a kid. You know, watching those those films, and it was you know Godzilla, of course, is is fantastic, and Mothra, and all of these, and there are some really wacky, crazy ones. But uh, you know, I mean. This, and this kind of goes into what, I'm, what I just finished working on, but I think so many great things came out of Japan during the 50s and 60s, you know, as far as entertainment goes, and even just stuff that's just television series, and, and, and I, you know, uh, Speed Racer, which I just finished, that was one of those other things that I would run home from school to see, you know, and I loved it, and I loved the music in it, and I just, everything about it, so, you know, I, I feel like I've just kind of been, you know, transported back to my, my days of being 10, 12 years old, and I'm still able to play with these things, and it's, but it's so sad because I'm 40. And I'm <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything that you can tell us about Speed Racer that you've just finished and any plans you might have in terms of music for the upcoming Star Trek? Well, I can tell you, as far as Speed Racer goes, I mean, I wouldn't have jumped on this movie if it had been, you know, for me to take a project, I really am so picky, and they have to have the right people involved, and I, because I put so much into these things, I, you know, I just want to make sure I'm working with people that feel the same. And so when I knew that it was the Wachowski brothers doing it, I thought, wow, Speed Racer by the Wachowski brothers, that could be awesome. And I don't know if anyone has seen the recent trailers, but literally, this movie is like no movie you have ever seen in your life. Did you, have you ever heard the stories of when they first when they first started showing movies in these little rooms and, the, you know, and, and pe it was a film of a train coming towards the camera and people would just run from the theaters because <laughs> they didn't know what they were looking at. They had no clue. They thought they were going to get run over by a train. You know, when I started seeing images from this film, that's exactly how I felt. I was like, what am I seeing here? I've never seen anything like this. So they've completely broken a lot of rules, a lot of the kind of standard rules of filmmaking to tell this story. And, and it's really fun and different to see, and I promise you, it's, it's, you'll enjoy it. So what can you tell us about what you're thinking about for music for Star Trek? I'm, at this point, still pretending I don't even have to write it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, again, talk, talk about things that you love, uh, you know, and again, another one of those things was Star Trek for me, and I'm just kind of, it's, it's just very daunting. It's a big hill for me, I feel like, because, you know, James Horner and Jerry Goldsmith in particular 
are two guys who I have enormous respect for, and I'm huge fans of theirs. And of course, you know, I would listen to Star Trek The Motion Picture soundtrack and Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan endlessly as a kid. And to be sitting here on the verge of starting work on this with JJ to me is very scary. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm um, pretending it's not happening until <laughs> someone makes me do something. One final question from me. Uh -huh. What's the most fun about doing what you do? I love being with the musicians. I, I love being with the musicians. Because it's not a very social thing what I do for a living. I sit in a room uh, by myself and I write music. And uh, the fun part for me is, is I get to play Dr. Frankenstein, you know, and I, because what I do is I kind of bring the, the cables to the orchestral, to the, to the recording stage, and I plug them into the orchestra, and I get to go put that switch on, and that, everything lights up, and, and, and the orchestra just starts playing, and it's like this really amazing gift that they have that they can sit, come in and sit down on a sheet full of black notes that you would look at and go, this would take months for me to learn to play. They just sit down and go, all right, let's play it. You know? <laughs> and you're like, really? You're just going to, honestly, you're just going to sit down and play. And I, so it's gotten to the point where I try to make it hard for them. I really do. <laughs> I really do. And I can, there's a man right here, Bobby Shulgold, who played the flute on Ratatouille, who was amazing. <laughs> There's, there's this one scene in Ratatouille where Remy is running through the walls of these buildings and eventually makes his way up to the rooftop and sees all of Paris. Well, all the way from the, from the sewer up to the roof is Bobby playing the flute, but these almost unplayable runs, and I remember sitting there writing, going, I'm going to get him on this one. I'm going to get him on this one. <laughs> you know? But I didn't. He played it. He just kicked it. Keep, you know, doing it. So uh, for me, uh, the best thing about this whole process has been to, to work with the greatest musicians in the world, you know. So, and I'm lucky because I get to record almost everything I do here in LA. You know, so many times films go overseas for things, but I love the idea of, as a kid, I think one of the things that attracted me to this was the idea of a city that was created specifically for making entertainment. And I thought, that is cool. You know, here's a city you can go to, and every job revolves around making, you know, entertainment and making people happy, making me, because storytelling is, is really all people have in life, right? That is, everything boils down to storytelling, no matter what time period in history you go back to, it boils down to storytelling. And I think, you know, it's really fun to be a part of this process that, that helps people enjoy stories. You've been listening to composer Michael Giacchino with film music critic John Burlingame. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Socalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. Catch us again next Sunday, or we'll see you at one of our free live events around town. For more information, go to SocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. The executive producer for Socolo Radio is Peter Stenshol. Douglas Gary is our engineer. Thank you for tuning in.